As I listened to Pastor Dave read the tail end of chapter 52 and all of chapter 53 of this amazing prophecy of Isaiah, it just seems overwhelmingly to be describing Jesus. And not just describing Jesus in generalities, but really with specificity, uh, describing the details surrounding the death of Jesus, and not just the death of Jesus, but with profound and deep and rich um, explanation, uh, diving into the theological implications of the death of Jesus. It's incredible. And as we uh, read Isaiah 53 or have it read for us, it's really easy to forget that this is actually penned by Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus is born. And so today uh, we're going to pick back up with our summer teaching series that we're calling Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And today we want to practice how to see Jesus how to adjust our focus to see Jesus in Old Testament prophecy. And so we're going to use Isaiah 53 as a, really a, a representative uh, passage of how it is that Jesus wants us to look at all Old Testament prophecy and really the whole Old Testament uh, period um, to see Jesus. Because Jesus says the whole thing is all about him, that he actually shows up on every page. And so in Old Testament prophecy, we want to look to see Jesus. And Isaiah 53 is representative of that. And Isaiah 53 is, is a passage that really has pretty startling clarity in terms of seeing Jesus. So uh, what I want to do just for a moment is uh, look very quickly at three other passages that are less startling in terms of their clarity in seeing Jesus, just, just to help us practice this uh, seeing Jesus in prophecy more and more. And so I was recently reading from the book of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, the second last uh, book of the Old Testament. And uh, we're just going to look very quickly at three passages in Zechariah just as practice. So let's go to uh, Zechariah chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. And here's what we read. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are Seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Notice the phrase, symbolic of things to come. We're looking through a Jesus lens here, symbolic of things to come. So we can see that the, the high priest is symbolic of things to come. The high priest and all of his associates who oversee this entire old covenant sacrificial system are symbolic of things to come. And by the way, notice the name of the high priest here. It's Joshua. And you probably know that the name Joshua is the very same 
as the name Jesus. Um, so this high priest name is, is uh, Joshua. So same name as Jesus. In um, Hebrew, the name of Jesus is Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. So Yeshua translated into English is Joshua. And the Greek version of Yeshua translated into English is Jesus. So Joshua and Jesus are the exact same name. And so, you know, this is uh, interesting here. We are looking at a Jesus in the Old Testament who is the high priest. And Zechariah writes to Jesus, to Joshua, saying that this whole um, sacrificial system is one big living symbol of what is to come. It's all a symbol pointing to one day. It's, it's an amazing thing. So this whole ongoing sacrificial system that is performed by the high priest and all of his associates day after day after day to continually top up Israel's forgiveness and cleansing. Well, we read, I will come and remove it in a single day. And so this Old Testament sacrificial system is preparatory for one day. Uh, well, what day is that one day? Well, it's Good Friday, the day that Jesus says it is uh, finished. Um, another passage in Zechariah in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So here's your king. Um, he's coming to set up his kingdom, but this is a this is a really different kind of king, and it's a really different kind of kingdom. Uh, this king comes without all of the usual paraphernalia of royalty: no crown, no robe, no chariots, no horses, no military procession. No, this king comes on a donkey, a very different kind of king, and a very different kind of kingdom on a donkey, not very impressive, not very royal, not very kingly. Uh, this is an intentionally chosen symbol for a very different kind of kingdom. And notice it says, I will take away the chariots and the war horses and the, and the battle bows. So this different king who comes on a donkey in humility, um, is going to set up his kingdom entirely apart from the methodology of battle and war. And notice the phrase, to the ends of the earth. So this king setting up this kingdom, well, this kingdom is going to be, uh, this is beyond Israel. This is global. Uh, this is a kingdom that will be without borders. And um, notice also where it says, I will 
take away the chariots from Ephraim. And then it says, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend. Well, Zechariah, which is it? Is it I or is it he? Is it I or is it his? And Zechariah says, yes. This is not unlike uh, what we saw just a few weeks ago in John's gospel. In John chapter one, verse one, where John said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, what is it, John? Is it, is it with God or was God? Yes. Zechariah, is it I or is it he? Yes, this is, a, this is a with God, was God kind of moment. It's grammatically confusing. We could even say grammatically sloppy, but theologically brilliant and breathtaking. Um, one other passage that we'll quickly just look at in Zechariah. Um, it's a passage where... Um, it's one of those passages where like an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament writer has this um, capacity to reach forward hundreds of years to the experience of Jesus, perhaps to the suffering of Jesus and to grab hold of that and to pull it back into their own moment and to describe that suffering as they're describing their own suffering. We saw David uh, do that in Psalm 22 a few weeks ago. Um, David said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so there's David. We don't know of any situation in David's life where he literally had pierced hands and feet. But David, as he's describing his own suffering, well, his own suffering is representing the suffering of Jesus. And it's almost like David... Uh, channels Jesus. I know that's a very loaded new, um, you know, kind of a, a new age term of sorts, but I think we can use it rather appropriately of David as he pulls the suffering of Jesus and describes it in his own suffering. And we see something similar to that here in uh, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, which says, and I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. So this is beautiful. This is God. He's going to pour out a spirit, a spirit of grace. And he goes on to say, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. So there's that piercing uh, language again. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So here again, you know, they will look on me, the one they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So Zechariah, is it me or is it him? Uh, you know, which is it? Yes. Again, this is, this is like John. This is, a, this is a, a with God and was God kind of moment. Uh, yes, Jesus is me and Jesus is him. Here is Yahweh uh, being pierced and then Yahweh being mourned for bitterly as a him, as a son. Again, it's uh, grammatically confusing, but theologically brilliant. And so these are passages that we want to learn to more and more and more see through a Jesus lens. In fact, everything we read in the Old Testament, we want to intentionally 
um, try and, and uh, tie what we're reading to Jesus and the gospel. Well, what we want to do for the next uh, few minutes is we want to uh, look at seven observations about Jesus and the gospel in Isaiah chapter 53. So we're going to look at just seven spots in Isaiah 53 where we really can tie to Jesus and the gospel. And so uh, point number one is this. Jesus' suffering is for us. And we can see this in verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm not going to read these verses again, uh, but if you have Isaiah 53 open, you can just kind of let your eyes um, roll over verses 4, 5, and 6 and notice the words our and us and we. Now, we're saying specifically this is Jesus' suffering. Even though this is 700 years before Jesus is born, we're saying specifically that this is describing the suffering of Jesus. And we can say that definitively because several of the gospel and New Testament writers uh, affirm that this prophecy of Isaiah 53 is specifically a prophecy of Jesus. And so we're saying that the suffering of Jesus is for us. Uh, he is not suffering for something he has done. He, his suffering is for us. And as you read the gospel account, and uh, uh, quite literally in the gospel story, the suffering of Jesus is for us. He's not suffering for himself. Specifically in that historical context, uh, he is suffering for the people present. And who was present at the cross? Well, it was the uh, religious establishment and the political establishment coming together to crucify Jesus. And whenever you have the religious establishment and the political establishment coming together, Jesus always gets crucified. And, and here it is their sin of rejection. It's their sin of, of preservation. The religious security of the day was threatened by Jesus. And the political security of the day was threatened by Jesus. I think Pilate, I think Pilate felt like if Jesus did establish a kingdom, it wasn't going to be a political kingdom. But nevertheless, Pilate knew that people could revolt and protest and, and um, that that would eventually uh, make news back in Caesar's household and that it could mean trouble for him. And so, you know, Pilate's decision here is one of self-preservation. These are, these are decisions of institutional preservation. And it's the sin of the religious establishment and the political establishment that leads to the death of Jesus. So Jesus is literally dying for those who are around him in that historical moment. But Jesus is not just dying for the sins of, of the religious establishment and Pilate in that moment. He is also dying for us. His suffering is for us. It's by his wounds we all are healed. Uh, second thing is this. Some thought Jesus was punished by God, and we can see that in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And if you think about that scene at Calvary, you can see why people might 
draw the wrong conclusion that Jesus was being punished by God. Uh, If you look at the cross and you see Jesus on the cross, in very close proximity to Jesus, there are two other crosses on either side of him. There are two men also being crucified. We we, um, typically refer to them as thieves, but that really is um, an inaccurate description of these two other men who are being crucified. The Greek word that is used to describe them is spelled L-E-S-T-E-S, pronounced leistes, and it means a rebel. Uh, These are men who were rebelling against the state. These were insurrectionists. These were political insurrectionists. These were men fighting against Rome, trying to reestablish a Jewish state. And they were choosing the method of violence and revolt in order to do that. And so, you know, as people were looking at these three crosses, they could draw the conclusion that here are three enemies of the state. Here's two insurrectionists, this guy in the middle. Well, he's king of some other kingdom, but all three of them are, are um, you know, enemies of the state. They're, they're three people who are guilty of treason uh, against Rome. And so it seems like all three of them are getting what they deserved. That's what we thought was going on. But that, in fact, wasn't true. Here's what was true. Point number three, Jesus was sinless. And we see this in verse 9. Verse 9 talks about there being no deceit in his mouth. Uh, There's no violence. The way of Jesus is not the way of violence. He's not chosen Um, the way of violence or deceit. Verse 11 talks about him being righteous. He's not dying because of his own sin um, in any way at all. So Jesus was sinless. Uh, Point four is this. Jesus' suffering leads to our peace, our healing, and our justification. We can see in verse five the talk about peace. And healing in verse 5. And then verse 11 talks about justification. So uh, there are many benefits of salvation. And here are three delineated uh, rather clearly in Isaiah 53. So it is the, the suffering of Jesus on the cross that leads to our peace. Certainly to peace that we have with, with God. But also... It is what Jesus does on the cross that enables us to have peace with each other and all others. It is what Jesus has done on the cross that enables us and is the pattern for us to engage in a ministry of reconciliation and to be ones who seek to work for peace. One of the things that I think we would do well to call out and to call attention to in the church today is our habit of using divisive language. And I'm not talking about using divisive language in a really blatant and intentional way, but we very frequently, habitually have divisive language even in our conversations of compassion. We call these microaggressions. We're not even aware we're doing it. It's just kind of habitually embedded in our 
conversations, even conversations of compassion, we can be talking about the poor. And we can say things like, oh, those poor people over there, or those poor people over there, we have what they need, and we should uh, meet the needs that they have. The microaggressions are seen in this kind of us and them sort of language. It's oddly and grotesquely divisive. And what it does is it, 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 it's, um, it's microaggressions of judgmentalism, microaggressions of, of our sense of superiority, microaggressions as seen in our pity. And rather than pity, what we should have is, is a sense of honor and a sense of learning from people. And so what Jesus does on the cross is he pulls together people who are very, very different from one another, very, very different from us. And the attitude that Jesus uh, wants us to hold is an attitude that says um, they are uh, better, right? Consider them better than ourselves, not equal to, but better than ourselves. And when we hold that attitude, that, that facilitates a, a humble disposition that says, I want to learn from you. And um, that helps us move into relationship with one another. And so it, it's what Jesus does on the cross that, that enables us to be uh, reconciled and to experience peace among divided groups, uh, groups that are divided uh, ethnically or socioeconomically or stylistically or gender-wise or age-wise brings us uh, together as family. And so there's uh, peace. And of course, um, healing as well. We see healing mentioned in, in um, verse 5. Is there healing in the atonement? Uh, yes. Is there healing physically in the atonement? Yes. Is there healing now in this life because of the atonement of Jesus? Yes. And there are times in this life where Jesus heals people. There's times where he doesn't. And I don't know why some are healed and some aren't. But there is healing in the atonement. And so if you experience physical healing in this life because of what Jesus does, um, that's an amazing thing. But you will also be disappointed with it. You say, how could you ever possibly be disappointed if Jesus heals you? Well, whatever healing you receive, even from Jesus in this lifetime, will be temporary and it will be incomplete you will eventually die. So there is healing in the atonement, and there are times where Jesus heals now, but it's temporary and incomplete. And, and even if you're not healed in this lifetime, because of the atonement of Jesus, you will definitely be healed completely and fully and permanently in the life to come. A resurrected uh, body 
that is perfect and perfectly healed. And I think, uh, I think it's important to point out that, that Jesus always prioritized the healing of sins above physical healing. Um, think of a story. It's, um, it's told, I believe it's in Matthew 21. And uh, there's a story of four guys who bring their friend to Jesus. Their friend is paralyzed. And so he's, they, they put him on a stretcher and these four friends carry their paralyzed buddy to Jesus for healing. And uh, Jesus is teaching. He's in a house. The place is packed. These guys can't get their friend anywhere near Jesus. And so they're very enthusiastic and uh, determined. And so they go up on the roof and they make a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down to Jesus. And if you've read that account, um, you, you might remember what Jesus says to this paralyzed guy in that moment. He says, your sins are forgiven. And it's like these four buddies of Jesus are like, oh, well, Jesus, that's nice. Uh, but that's actually not why we brought him here. We brought him here so you could fix his legs, like his legs don't work. And it's nice that his sins are forgiven. But what we really want is, is uh, for our friend to be able to walk again. And so Jesus, in that, um, in that account, says, okay, so that you may know that I, the Son of Man, have the greater power, namely to heal sins, I'm going to go ahead and fix this guy's legs. And uh, so Jesus always prioritizes the healing of sin as the greater miracle, even above the miracle of, uh, of physical healing. So uh, his suffering leads to our, our, our peace, peace with God and peace with those from whom we're very different. Uh, provides healing and uh, justification, justification, justified um, justification. Um, we use this word uh, quite a bit, justify or justified justification in church world. I'm not sure that we have always the, the greatest grasp of what it really means, but there is another word that I think we're more familiar with that we use more frequently, and it's, it's the word righteous. The word righteous and the word justify have the same root um, in both Hebrew and Greek, the very same um, kind of base meaning. Now, we don't have a, an active verb for righteous like we do with justify. We don't have an active verb for righteous. If we did, we could, we could make one up. It would be like righteousify. And you know what, if that were a word, I think that could be a really helpful word in describing what Jesus has done on the cross. He has righteousified us. He has made us right with God, uh, just where we need to be in relation to God. We are made right, righteousified uh, through what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is, this is good, good news. And it's not... Um, Man, it's not a message of religion at all. This is not about what we deserve. This is not about human performance. This is not about behavior. This is about receiving something as a gift for free that is undeserved. This is, this is grace. So, um, 
peace, healing, and uh, justification. Righteous, uh, he righteous, righteousifies us uh, by way of the cross. Well, let's, let's look at the fifth thing. Uh, number five, the cross was God's plan. We can see this in verse uh, six. Verse six says, um, you know, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, verse 10 says it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. This is God's plan. One of the things that I think we do well in our Anabaptist circles is we don't take this thought farther than scripture does. We are careful not to somehow make this say something that goes beyond scripture. We're careful not to say that, okay, this, this is the cross is something that God did to Jesus. This is God in his wrath, in his wrath. He kills Jesus so he doesn't have to kill us. This is something that God does. God does this to Jesus. We, we, don't, um, we don't take that tone in our conversation because that goes farther than scripture does. Jesus told a story in, um, in the New Testament, uh, a parable, where he talked about a, a wealthy landowner. He was a wealthy landowner, and, and uh, he prepared, his, um, he prepared this, this vineyard, and he plants a vineyard, and he builds a wall around it, and digs a wine press, and, and builds a, a watchtower. And then this wealthy landowner rents it out to tenants. And then the owner goes on a, on a long journey. And so uh, the owner later sends his servants to the vineyard to see the tenants to get their share of the produce. That's how the rent was paid in, in the fruit, in, in produce. And when the servants of the owner attended the vineyard, well, the, the tenants there, well, they beat one of them up, killed another, and stoned a third. And so the, the owner sent more servants and uh, the tenants did the same thing to them. And so the owner says, well, I'm gonna send my son. Surely they will listen to my son. And so the owner sends his son and the tenants take the son, drag him outside the vineyard and beat him and kill him. And as you read that story, you ask the question, well, who, who is responsible for killing the son? Is it the, the father or is it the tenants? And as you read that story, it's clearly the, the tenants who are responsible and will be held accountable for killing the son. It's not the father who's ultimately responsible for killing the son, it's, it's on the tenants. And uh, if you think about the apostolic language of the New Testament, even if you think about the book of Acts, think about, think about Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Right after uh, Pentecost, Jesus has, has been resurrected from the dead. Peter is preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, and he's preaching to the people, to the religious establishment and the political establishment who were on hand at the cross. And Peter says, you killed them. This is on you. You killed the, the Lord of glory. God has raised him, but you killed him. And we see that apostolic language uh, all through the book of Acts, 
putting the responsibility for killing Jesus on those who were present there in that moment at the cross. So yes, there is wrath at the cross, but it's primarily our wrath vented on Jesus and God's love uh, flowing to us. You know, Paul, I think it's in Romans 5.8, says uh, what's demonstrated at the cross is God's love, not God's wrath, but God's love. And so, yes, this is God's plan. Um, but I think of it more like, rather than this God of wrath who kills Jesus so that he doesn't have to kill us, that the cross is, is something God does to Jesus. I think of it more like, like a father who sends his son as a missionary, knowing that he will die and being prepared to use that. That's a very imperfect analogy, but I think it, I think it grasps better what the tone of scripture is. And we wanna be careful not to go farther than scripture does. And I think also helpful is this sixth point, which says the cross was Jesus' choice. This was his choice. We looked uh, a few weeks ago, um, we looked at Jesus in Genesis chapter one, saw that Jesus is the creator. And that is Jesus is creating, he's creating a world knowing that he's gonna enter in as our rescuer, as our redeemer. He's the lamb of God slaughtered before creation. This was intentional. Uh, this was a, a choice that Jesus made. And so uh, this is not merely something done by God to Jesus. This is Jesus' choice. He's fully participating in laying down his life. In fact, you might remember the words of Jesus where he said, um, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to, to uh, lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. And then uh, the final point is this, the cross ends the system of religion, ends it in a single day, Zechariah said. That whole Old Testament sacrificial religious system ended with the sacrifice of Jesus, ended in a single day, ended at the very moment that Jesus said, finished. One of the things I think um, is, is really compelling about this and in this 10th uh, verse, um, there's, there's a number of things we could talk about in this ending of, of the redundancy of religion, but it, it talks about the Lord making his life a guilt offering. And that's interesting language. If you, if you look at this thing of a, of, of a guilt offering, and, and if you go back to um, Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 6, where the, the details of the guilt offering are laid out, you will see that the guilt offering was an offering that was accompanied by restitution. So if you took something from somebody, you would make a guilt offering, but you would also make restitution for what it was that you took. Uh, if you destroyed something of someone's, you would make a guilt offering, but you would also replace. You would provide restitution for what it was that you uh, destroyed or, or damaged. So if you if you stole $100 from somebody, you would make a guilt offering, but you would also pay back the $100. But not just that. You would pay back 20% more. You would pay back um, 
$120. And the interesting thing here is the, the death of Jesus on the cross is described in the language of a guilt offering. And it helps us to see that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all 100%. And not just that, but he also paid the additional 20% for those who were inconvenienced by your sin. Jesus paid it all. He ended it. The final sacrifice in a day uh, ended full, complete. Jesus paid it all. This is the gospel. You know, Isaiah 53, this is the gospel. And it is a beautiful thing just to, to think about it and to celebrate it and to, just to say, God, thank you for this a clear presentation of the gospel. You know, 700 years before Jesus is even born, it's an amazing, amazing thing. But beyond merely celebrating this, there's a pattern for us to follow in Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, Peter really points this out, and we'll close with this. Um, Peter, as he reflects back on Isaiah chapter 53, he makes careful note to see this as, a, as an example for us, a pattern for us, that what we read about Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 53 is instructive um, for us. There's a pattern for us. Here's what Peter says. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To this you were called. Well, to what? To what are we called? Well, let's go to the, to the previous verse. And Peter says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? In other words, if you get... You do something wrong, you get busted, you pay the price, you do the time. Uh, there, you know, there's no brownie points in that, right? There's no, there's no credit uh, for doing that. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, well, this is commendable before God. And to this you are called. To what? To suffering for doing good. You are called to this. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then what Peter does in the very next verse, he begins to quote from Isaiah 53, pointing out that this is our example. Here's what Peter says. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter goes on to say, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here's Peter reflecting on this very same passage, Isaiah chapter 53. And what he's saying is, this is an example for us. This is, this is an example of how our posture, our demeanor ought to be with others, how we ought to serve others, how we ought to love others, how we ought to lay down our lives for others. This is an example. 
Yes, it's the gospel. It is to be celebrated, but this is a pattern for us. So that leads us uh, to two questions. Two questions, and, and, and um, we'll, we'll close with these. Two questions. Number one, to whom are you going to tell the Jesus story? This is the gospel. It is good news. Good news is meant to be shared. To whom are you going to tell the Jesus story? If you are a follower of Jesus and you are not with some regularity telling the Jesus story, there's a hole in your discipleship journey. You know, as a church, as a church of Jesus followers, if we are not telling the Jesus story, we really can't call ourselves a church. And so to whom are you going to tell the Jesus story? This is a story that is to be told. Who are you going to tell? And the second question is this. Who are you going to serve in Jesus' name? Remember, Peter says, Isaiah 53, everything that we've read is instructive for us. This is a pattern for us. Jesus left this as an example for us of, of, uh, of a story to tell and people to serve in his name. And you might say, well, you know, if I tell the Jesus story and if I, if I seek to serve people in Jesus' name, well, what if they, what if they insult me? What if they, what if they uh, make fun of me? What if they hurl insult, insults at me? Well, you know, or, or what if they make it really hard for me? Well, what if they do? What if they insult you? And what if you respond with kindness? And what if you serve them anyway? Then you would really be following in the footsteps of Jesus. You would, in a sense, and I don't want to take this language too far, but in a sense, you would be absorbing their sin, you know, bearing their sin, in a sense. And rather than retaliating, you would be offering forgiveness and kindness as a response. So think about your workplace. You know, in a few weeks, you can be thinking about school. Think about your friends. Think about your neighbors. Who will you serve in Jesus' name, and who are you going to tell? Well, let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your written word. It's alive and powerful. We thank you that it reveals Jesus to us, even hundreds of years before his birth. And we're so thankful today for Jesus, the living word, our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior. Thank you, Jesus, that in your suffering on the cross, you provided for our peace. You provided for our healing. You provided for our justification. And you also provided an example for us to follow. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us would you stir us up this week to tell someone the Jesus story and to serve others in Jesus' name, to love others in Jesus' name, to lay ourselves down for others the way you taught and the way you showed. May we love others the way that you have loved us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.